Be seated. Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Scott Hickox. I am part of the <clears throat> teaching team here, and it's, it's an honor to get to be with you this morning. It's always a privilege for me just to open God's Word and be with you. So, uh, again, welcome. Glad that you're here. I want to I start this morning. I'm going to give a, a, sort of a list of some questions that I'm going to ask us just to, to think about, hopefully to get our minds sort of ready for where, uh, where we're going this morning, all right? So just think with me, if you will, as I, as I throw these out there. But why do you think it is? Why is it that we are, um, why it's so hard for us to be satisfied? I mean, why, uh, why isn't one Super Bowl in 50 years enough for us, right? <laughs> but really, what, what is it in us? Why do so many of our marriages uh, struggle over time? Why do we have such a hard time getting along with family and, and friends? Why do we have so much debt? Why do we stand in front of full refrigerators and say we have nothing to eat, or full closets and say we have nothing uh, to wear? Why do we struggle with envy? Why, why do trials paralyze us more than they should? Why, why do people so easily disappoint us? Why does life in the here and now never seem to deliver what we hope that it will. See, if we're honest, I think we all long for things to be different than they are. I think it's hard for us to be content in this world because we actually have a craving for what, for what could be. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this. It says that God has set eternity in the human heart. See, in every human soul, a believer or unbeliever alike, is this God-given awareness that there's something more than this world. I think these words of C.S. Lewis say it all. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, I think he's, he's right. You were made for forever. And because you have forever inside of you, it, it sort of creates this natural disappointment with the, with the brokenness of the here and now. And I think it's right to feel that, uh, to be sad, to be, to be disappointed with, with the things, with the way that things are. But you see, the problem comes in when, when we expect this world then um, to satisfy us. And one of the reasons I think life is so hard for us um, is that we lose sight of eternity. Paul Tripp, says, Paul Tripp says that we are eternity amnesiacs. You see, we forget forever. And I would argue that life only works as, it's, as it was meant to work when we live with forever in view. And so that's where we're headed today. That's sort of the, the big idea is that God calls us to live with eternity in view. And he only deals with us with eternity in view. All right, that's where we're headed. We're not going to get there till the end, so you're going to have to hang with me a little bit. Um, you can open up your Bibles if you have them with you to Luke chapter 20. That's where we're going to be this morning. And if you were here last week, Tim talked about the passage last week. It was a difficult passage. I agree. It was difficult. It's not like he left me a piece of cake this morning. Um, uh, we've got marriage in heaven and the age to come. All right, so that's what we get this morning. I'm not going to answer all the questions. I'm certain of that. The good news is Tim will be back next week, so just ask him, Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so let's read again Luke chapter 20 we're going to start in verse 27 some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up and questioned him 
Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also the second. And the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. Jesus told them, The children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead but of the living because all are living to him. And some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. They no longer dared to ask him anything. This is the word of the Lord. Let me just pray for us. God, your word is a gift to us. Um, And yet without your spirit, Lord, we're sort of helpless with it. So I'm praying uh, that your spirit would come, that he would speak this morning. We need him to speak truth. And I pray uh, that you'd get me out of the way, protect me from error, and just... Let your people hear what they need to hear from your word. I pray uh, that as we think about the age to come, or even though it's beyond what we can comprehend, I believe, I pray that it would begin to stir something in us, um, that we would be changed as a result of our time here this morning. So, Lord, I pray, again, by the power of your spirit, that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been with us, we've been in this book of Luke for, for a while now. Um, Jesus is in Jerusalem now. And if you remember, uh, Luke told us uh, way back in chapter 9, he said that Jesus um, had set his face to go to Jerusalem. So, so Jesus knew what was to come, uh, but he was determined to get there. And so we knew he was headed that direction. In Luke chapter 19, it's when he actually gets to Jerusalem. When he gets there, he weeps over the city. He cleansed the temple. He he taught in the temple. And all the while, uh, these religious leaders um, are seeking to kill him. And then in chapter 20, where we are now, he gets a series of of questions from the religious leaders. The first question they ask at the beginning of the chapter was, where do you get this authority? Who gave you this authority, Jesus? And then the next question they ask is, uh, well, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And that's what we dealt with last week. And then today, the third question, and this is actually the final question that Jesus gets from the religious leaders in the book of Luke, um, they ask, whose wife will she be? Now keep in mind, I I think we've talked about this, but none of these questions really are honest inquiries for for information. All three are really attempts to sort of trick Jesus, to to trip him up, maybe to embarrass him or, or compromise his authority. That's what they're trying to do. And so today we're introduced to a new group of religious leaders called uh, the Sadducees. This is the only place they're mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. And the truth is, we don't know that much uh, about them. But here's what we do know. Um, they They were small in number, but they had lots of power. They controlled the whole operation of the temple. So all of the buying and selling of the sacrifices that we've been hearing about, uh, they controlled all that, which means they were very wealthy. They had their hands in all that money. They also uh, were pretty political. They cooperated with Rome because they wanted to maintain their power and their control, their their money. As a result of that, they were sort of hated, really, by by the Jewish people. But the one thing that Luke wants us to know about them is that they don't believe in the resurrection. And that's what their question makes clear. 
this group of people, the Sadducees, they really, they prided themselves on being the, really the religious people who, who took their faiths the most seriously. Um, they were committed to the, the true faith. They held to the priority of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. These were the words of, of Moses. And so Moses was their guy, and, and, and so they followed him. And in their mind, Moses didn't talk about the resurrection, so therefore, it didn't exist. And you see, that has implications. They don't believe in the resurrection. There's nothing to worry about in the life to come. So, so they're living in the here and now. And they're going to do everything they can to control their power, their control, their money. You see, what we believe, it does impact how we live, right? It certainly did for the Sadducees. And so, so now they want to discredit Jesus in front of the people. And so they ask him this question that I'm guessing they've asked hundreds of times before. This is sort of their go-to, their, their secret weapon when they want to torpedo anyone who's talking about the resurrection. And they're thinking, we'll get Jesus. We'll make him look stupid here. Now they start by setting him up. And in verse 28, they, they call him teacher, a term of respect. So they're sort of lifting it up before they're going to try and just take his knees out from under him. They say, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for her brother. Now, you see what they did in the question there? They immediately mentioned Moses, of course, they would, right? They immediately go to, to, to the Pentateuch. They're in Deuteronomy chapter 25, of course, they would do that. And they pull out this, um, this principle of, it's called leveret marriage. The word leveret means brother. Uh, it's, it means brother marriage. And it, it seems strange to us, but we have to keep in mind the context. Okay, back in the book of Deuteronomy, the nation of Israel is about to go in uh, to the promised land, right? God has promised the land, and so he's going to divide up the land by tribes and by families, and so, so offspring and progeny are really important, and this was a way to protect that. And Moses said, if a woman's husband dies, she doesn't have a son, then her brother-in-law would take her as his wife and keep the family line going. This way they could, again, protect these promises of God's promise of the land. Very practically, it was also a, a social safety net because women in those days, um, their husband provided in their old age, old age, their children provided. And so if she didn't have a husband and didn't have kids, um, she, she's going to be destitute, right? And so Moses had allowed for this. He had created this principle. And so, so the Sadducees, they, they present Jesus with a scenario. Seven brothers. Now, by the way, um, this is a made-up scenario. You know how I know that? I mean, just think about it. If you're the fourth brother, are you hanging around? No chance, right? I mean, if you're five, six, or seven, you're getting as far away from this woman as you can. She, she's dangerous, right? You're leaving. In the story, seven brothers marry this woman, and they all die. And then we're told in verse 32, mercifully, finally, the woman dies. No matter how many lives, don't tell them how many lives were saved as a result of that. So they create this bizarre scenario and they say, okay, Jesus, in the resurrection, which one's wife shall we be? For all seven had her as his wife. Now, I don't know. I'm just sort of imagining, but, but I can sort of just see smirks on their faces. You know, they're like, we've got him now. This is our question. No one's ever been able to answer it. Jesus is not going to be able to answer it. You see, the Pharisees, they, they thought the next life was going to be just like this life, only, only longer. So they, they were ready to just expose it all. But Jesus' answer is going to blow them away. See, because what he wants them to understand is that this age and the age to come are fundamentally different. The future age plays by a very different set of rules than the present age, and it surpasses it in, in every way. And in responding, Jesus, 
I don't think he's primarily making a statement about the temporary nature of marriage. He's really reasserting what Scripture teaches, that the resurrection age is radically different from the present age. And I want to make sure that we have time to to talk about the resurrection, um, but we can't ignore this teaching on marriage. I think it's important. So look at verse 35. He says, but those who are counted worthy to take part in that age. Again, he's talking about eternal life in the presence of God. And in the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Okay? Jesus is pretty straightforward here. He says there's not going to be marriage there. There's not going to be families there. Now, I'm guessing many of you who are married, maybe when you got married, part of your marriage vows was to say, until death do us part, right? But we may not have thought really about the implications of what that means. Jesus says there's not going to be marriage in heaven. So, so why? Look on, verse 36. I think he spells it out. He says, for neither can they die anymore. You see, no one's going to die, so nobody has to be replaced. There, there's no more need for, to be propagating more people because nobody is going to die. And Jesus goes on to say they're, they're like angels. And when he says that, he doesn't mean that we're going to have wings and harps. That's not what he's talking about. He means like angels in that they, they don't die and they don't procreate. Their number is fixed. There will not be a need for marriage in heaven. And frankly, see, there's no need for that kind of union because having a relationship with God and Christ as our, as our bridegroom and having perfect relationships with everybody else in the glory of heaven, it, it really it precludes the necessity of having any other lesser relationships. So what Jesus says here is that marriage is for this age. He says earthly marriage isn't designed to last forever, but it gives way to the marriage of Jesus and his bride, the church. Or, or maybe to say it another way, our marriages are designed to end to end in a better one. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, I don't know um, if this is new information to you. I I don't know how this strikes you uh, this morning. My guess is there's a lot of different emotions around when you hear something like that. So what I want to do is take just a moment and speak to a couple different groups and and tell you what I hope this, what Jesus says here, what I hope it stirs uh, in you. And first, I want to say something to unmarried Christians. Uh, I hope this is an encouraging reminder. You see, your identity is not anchored in your marital status now. It's anchored in your marital status then. And my fear is, my fear is that the church, and I don't mean this church specifically, I just mean the church, the broad church, I'm fearful that the church, in our attempt to honor marriage and families, oftentimes has made single Christians feel less than. And if that has happened to you, I just want to say I'm sorry. That's not how it should be. Scripture is clear that celibate singleness is not missing out on ultimate joy and meaning. It's not. It's not inferior. It's not incompleteness. It's a posture of taking the Lord at His word. Confident that He's using this unmarried walk to prepare you for a greater relationship. A greater reality in the age to come. So I just want to encourage you, believe that this morning. For married Christians... I think there should be comfort just thinking about that reality of till death do us part. Marriage is a beautiful gift of God, but it cannot bear the weight of satisfying you completely. It is not designed to do that. And when we attempt to do, 
When we attempt to make it satisfy us completely, it inevitably leads to frustration or to bitterness or even worse than that. Now, I realize even as I'm speaking to married couples, there's probably two camps in there as well. To those of you who are unhappily married, I mean, this, this might sound like a relief to you um, that your marriage will end. But hear me, Jesus' teaching goes beyond that. Because in the brokenness of the, of the present, your marriage, even, even failed marriages, have this heavenward significance where the wounds and the conflicts of this age give way to the Lamb's healing of His bride. And to those of you who are happily married, um, I realize that the fact that your marriage may be temporary is, is maybe it's sad to think about. I know it was for me as I'm just preparing this week. It's, it's pretty sad to, to think about. I get it. It's hard for me to envision um, anyone would know me any better than my wife and still love me. It's hard for me to really to picture that. And how could the age to come possibly be better without the intimacy and the friendship that we have? But we have to trust God at His word. He says it will be better, even if we can't comprehend it now. Maybe this will be helpful. Maybe this is one way to think about it. Imagine, if you will, think about a, think about a four- or a five-year-old kid. And you know how they sort of crinkle their nose and say, ooh, when they see like a couple kiss, right? I mean, they can't, they can't comprehend how that could possibly be enjoyable for anyone. In the same way, our earthly minds can't fathom what redeemed relationships are going to look like. And so though you won't be reunited in heaven as a spouse, you can trust. You can trust that whatever the relationship becomes in the resurrection is something better than marriage. It's something more than marriage, not, not less. That gives us hope, okay? Now, there's one more thing in there I skipped over, and it's really one more really important thing. When Jesus says that, look back at that passage at the very beginning. Look at what Jesus said. He says, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age. He's clearly speaking to the Sadducees here, but I think he's also speaking to us as well. And what he's saying is, um, not everyone is going to inherit eternal life with me. He said, only those who are counted worthy. So who is, who's worthy? Church, I hope we know the answer is no one. None of us are worthy. We're dead in our sin. It's the whole reason that Jesus came. Because we needed a Savior. We couldn't do this on our own. It's not like we just messed up a little, we made a few mistakes. Paul says we were dead. By nature, children of wrath. We see, then Jesus came. And he lived the life that we should have lived. He lived perfectly. He lived sinlessly in our place. And then he went to the cross. And he bore the punishment for sin, the punishment that we should have taken. He bore it in our place on the cross. And then he rose from the grave three days later. And he conquered sin and death and hell. That's the gospel. That's the, that's the good news, church. And the promise is that whoever believes in him, then will live with him forever. And so let me just say this. I, I don't know everyone here, because um, I don't get to do this that often, so I don't know. But maybe you're visiting, maybe you're here, and you, you've never really admitted that need to Jesus. Listen, I just want, to, want you to know that the invitation is real this morning. Jesus says, just, just come to me. Just admit your need. My grace is sufficient. I'll cover all your sins. I can forgive all your sins. Just admit them to me. And then you can live with him forever. 
And if you have questions about that, please talk to somebody. Somebody here, sitting around, someone on staff, come talk to me. Don't miss the opportunity this morning. But for the rest of us, if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, God counts you worthy. Not because of anything you've done, solely on account of what Christ has done for you, but he counts you worthy. The cross and the empty tomb, it's a great segue to what Jesus says next. Look, in verse 37, he's getting really to the crux of the matter here. And he says in verse 37, he says, the dead are raised. In other words, Jesus is saying, let's get back to the point. Listen, I dealt with your, your marriage question, okay? We solved that. Let's get to the most important thing. The dead are raised. There is a resurrection, Jesus says. And look at what else he says. You know what? He says, your guy actually does talk about it. He said, when God was introducing himself to your guy Moses in the burning bush, he said, he introduced himself as, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Present tense, I am. He's the God of people who have died. So it doesn't make any sense that he would be the God of people who were dead. So he goes on to say, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. He says, all are living to him. We just celebrated Easter a few weeks ago. The glorious truth, we just talked about that Jesus, after having been crucified on a cross, sacrificed for our sins, he rose again from the dead. We, we celebrated that the tomb is empty. And because he lives, we will live forever. Forever. So what does that, what does that mean? What does that look like? Again, we, we could talk about this for the rest of our lives and not scratch the surface. So just... Just a few things. Let's look at a few things that Scripture tells us. I want to make sure we're clear on these. When, when a follower of Jesus dies, they are immediately in his presence. Our physical bodies die, but our spirit will immediately be in his presence. Remember the thief on the cross? Jesus said what? Today, today you'll be with me in paradise. The Apostle Paul says, excuse me, he, uh, he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Again, when our physical body dies, our soul or our, our spirit will be, within, will be in the presence of the Lord. And that will, be, that will be glorious. But it doesn't stop there. It's not the end. Again, as I said before, we're not going to spend eternity just floating around in the, in the clouds with wings and, and harps. That's not our destiny. We're told that one day, that one day Jesus is going to return. And when he does, we too are going to be resurrected. Our physical bodies are going to raise, be joined with our spirits and our souls and we'll be given these new resurrected bodies. I don't have any idea what that means. I don't know what they're going to look like, but I know it's going to be better than this. Right? No more aches and pains. My hair will stop falling out. We're going to have bodies that don't get sick. No more cancer. But there's more. He's going to redeem creation. All of creation is going to be redeemed. Remember in the book of Genesis when God created everything, what did he say? He said, it's good, right? His creation is good. It was just marred by sin in the fall. But when he comes back, deem creation. Everything broken will be restored. I mean, the book of Revelation, lots of pictures of heaven there. But, but Jesus, he doesn't say in the book of Revelation, he doesn't say that he's going to make all new things, does he? He says, I'm going to make all things new. See, that's the beauty of the resurrection. He's going to make all things new. And that's what the age to come is going to be. Eternity in the presence of Jesus, surrounded by perfect relationships and perfect harmony. 
I mean, I, I can't even describe it. If I could describe it, you, you couldn't comprehend it. I just want you to think for a minute. Think of your, the most fantastic, the most amazing vision of heaven that you can imagine. Just think of it for a moment. And just know that it's going to be infinitely better than that. It's why the Apostle Paul said, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can conceive what God has prepared for those who love Him. And church, we're going to have an eternity of that. There's an illustration that um, Francis Chan used this about 20 years ago, but I think it's really good, and so I'm going to share it with you today. Um, I want you to imagine with me for a moment this rope, that this rope, that it goes on forever, okay? I got it at Lowe's. It's only 100 feet, okay? But you work with me here, all right? Imagine it goes on forever. It goes out the doors, down 35, out 70 to California, around the world, up into the atmosphere forever, okay? Now I want you to imagine that this rope is a timeline of your existence. And this blue part right here is your time on earth. See, God gives each of us just a few short years, and then we're going to spend an eternity somewhere else, right? This whole thing... This whole thing is your existence. Again, it goes on forever. But the problem is, so many of us spend most of our time just thinking about this part right here. I mean, just think about some of the things that that we say. Oh, man, I can't wait till I get here. I can't wait till I get here. I really, I can't wait till I get here. You know what? I'm going to work and work and work and save and save and save. So when I get here, I can retire. Maybe I can buy a boat. I mean, you realize how crazy that sounds in light of eternity? Do you remember what I said at the beginning? We are eternity amnesiacs. We forget forever. It makes me wonder if we're not just functional Sadducees. I mean, do we really believe in the resurrection? If I'm honest, I look at the way I live my life sometimes, I live as if I don't believe in the resurrection. And yet God calls us to live with eternity in view, right? The Bible says that that what I do in this part right here, it impacts how I experience all of this. And you see, too often I think we view this part as destination. We, we We think this is it. But what if? What if we began to view this part not as destination, but preparation for the destination? See, God only deals with us with eternity in view. So what that means? Your job, not destination, preparation. Your marriage, not not destination, preparation. Friends and family, not destination, preparation. Even, Even your suffering, not destination, preparation. Everything in this life is preparing us for eternity. And you see, the truth is, no matter how hard we try to make it one, this world is not a very good amusement park. It, it won't satisfy us completely. It's a broken place, and it too is groaning for redemption. Church here is meant to prepare us for eternity. I mean, that's why Scripture is full of these exhortations to, to lift our eyes, 
to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, right? The things that are seen are temporal. The things that are unseen are eternal. That's where he wants us to keep our focus. God calls us to live with eternity in view. I think when we do, that gives us hope. And we remember that God only deals with us with eternity in view. I think that will give us peace. And you see what happens as a result of that? I mean, if we really really believe what Jesus says here, if we start living with eternity in view, it, it changes everything. Because then we'll spend less time worrying about the temporary things of this world and more time dreaming about the glories of the next. We'd stop trying to frantically lengthen our days. And instead, we spend our days trying to make them count for eternity. We'd be less concerned about our physical appearance and more concerned about the condition of our heart. We make choices based on eternal consequences and not on instant gratification. I mean, we would, we would even grieve differently, right? Paul says that we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. I think it would give us more courage, too. We, we would stop neglecting those conversations with family and friends because we want them to experience eternity with us. See, believing in the resurrection, it's not just a theological issue. Like the Sadducees were trying to, to make it. It is intensely practical. It, it has implications for the here and now. Because if we really live with eternity in view, you see, despair will begin to be replaced by hope. Drudgery will soon give way to anticipation and indifference will, will be replaced by living with focus. You see, what we, li- what we believe really does impact how we live. In preparing for the sermon, I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, The truth is, I think God has had me thinking about this for quite a while now. Um, I read a book probably about a a year ago, uh, not a Christian book, uh, written by a doctor. It was called Being Immortal. It it really was profound, I thought. Um, And he really challenged what it means uh, to love and to care for people as they approach uh, the end of their life. I'm sure part of the reason it impacted me so much is just because of the season of life that Amy and I are in right now. Um, we're watching our parents really slow down. Uh, that's the main reason that we moved back to Liberty because we wanted to be around close so we could help and, and be with them. We know how blessed we are, frankly, to have all four of our parents still living. They're all in their 80s now, but what a gift that is. And so we want to spend as much time with them as, as possible. Um, you know, my father-in-law has stage four cancer, and so every day is really is a gift. Um, but it's not just my family. I have a dear friend who's dying of cancer. Um, and even closer to home, when I look in the mirror, um, it just reminds me, I got a lot more years behind me than I have ahead of me. I mean, that's just the reality. I think it struck me when we moved back to town because we, were, we moved back about two years ago and we'd be walking around town. We'd run into people that we knew from before and, and we'd have this conversation. It, usually there were similar elements every time, but, but we would at some point in the conversation say, you know, it's good to be back after eight years in St. Louis. And people would always say, eight years? I can't believe you were gone eight years. And when we would say that out loud, it didn't even make sense to us because it went so fast. Not just there was long days in there, but, but it went fast. And I began to think about that. Because here's the reality. If, if God gives me more time, and, and he doesn't, he's not promised another day to any of us, right? But, but if he gives me more time, if he gives me eight more years, I'm eligible for Medicare. <laughs> I'm just being honest. He gives me eight years after that, I'm in my 70s. He gives me eight more, I'm in my 80s. Church, this goes fast. Time is short. I want to be ready to meet Jesus. 
And more and more I find myself longing for that day. It's not because I hate my job or I, I don't like my neighbors. That's not it. I, I, like, I have a good life. I like it. I love my life. I love my wife. I want to be here. But when I think about what's in store, when I think about spending eternity in the, in the presence of Jesus, fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, the psalmist says, one day in his presence, better than thousands elsewhere. I'm guessing one instant in his presence, better than thousands elsewhere. When I think about no more suffering and no more sin, I mean, I can't fathom it. I can't, I can't help but get excited about it. And then when I think about what God is doing as a result of the resurrection, he's making all things new. Every wrong is going to be made right. Sam Ganji says in the Lord of the Rings, everything sad is coming untrue. It's a beautiful picture of the resurrection. I, I see why Paul said the human heart can't even comprehend what God has in store for us. So even though my time and the time of the people I love is, is getting shorter, the hope of the resurrection stirs my heart. Because of the resurrection, because Jesus lives, we're promised that we will live again too. And along with everyone else who, who believes in Jesus, we will rise. Immortal, incorruptible, perfected, completed, glorified. Free from sickness. Delivered from death with sin gone forever supernaturally restored, made like Jesus, all defects finally gone, with healthy bodies, clear minds, and undivided hearts, in a company with all the saints from all the ages, with people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we'll gather around the throne and we will laugh and we will sing. We will know each other more deeply. We'll love each other more completely. We'll think more clearly. We'll still be who we are and yet we'll be more than we could ever imagine will marvel at the grace of God forever. And we'll see Jesus. And we will bow down before him. And we will dwell in his presence in the house of the Lord forever. Church, this is our hope. This is our faith. This is our confidence. That death does not get the final word. Suffering does not get the final word. I don't know what you're going through today. But if you are a follower of Jesus, this is not the end of your story. Resurrection is. Believe that this morning. Jesus is making all things new because of the resurrection. Let's stand. We're going to sing about the glories of the resurrection and about Jesus. Let me just pray as the worship team comes. Father, would you give us eyes? Just give us a glimpse of the glory that is before us. And Lord, would you let us begin to live our lives in such a way that, that we can't take our eyes off of that? Don't let us be distracted by the things of this world. Fix our eyes on the things that are unseen. Fix our eyes above where Christ is seated. And Lord, help fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, would you do that? Would you help us live with eternity in view? And then will you remind us, Lord, that you only deal with us with eternity in view. And I know that's easier for some than others this morning. But for some, their life is going so well, they can just see your hand at work and it's easy for them to see that you are preparing them for something. But others, Lord, I know it's hard. They're suffering right now. Would you, would you just be near to them? Would you comfort? Would you remind them that even though they can't see or understand that you work preparing them for glory? Now we ask that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen.